When Teddy Roosevelt shot himself in the foot, he did it in a big way, boldly, energetically, and with little regard for long-term consequences. Kind of how he managed his own life. This was the approach that catapulted him to national prominence and popularity, making him among the first of that rare breed of celebrity American politicians and kicking off the 20th century presidency with a bang. But in this case, his trademark impulsiveness backfired in a way that made him regret it to the end of his days. This time, it cost him the White House. Anytime Theodore Roosevelt annoyed the political bosses of New York, they tried to send him out of town to a career-ending job in Washington, D.C. This never worked out for them. Teddy's latest stint as a major pain in the ass to the so-called machine politicians and bosses was as New York City Police Commissioner from 1895 to 1897. He promoted officers based on merit instead of party affiliations or bribes paid. One could become a patrolman for two or three hundred dollars and an officer for a few thousand. He went after the protection money paid by saloon keepers and brothel owners to police who would look the other way on Sundays when bars were supposed to be closed. The new commissioner found that there was a complete divorce of power from responsibility in the way the police department was run. It was exceedingly difficult to do anything, he said, or to place anywhere the responsibility for not doing it. The mayor and police chief lacked the authority to remove corrupt police officers. The political machines of the city, it would seem, were in charge of personnel at the New York City Police Department. Teddy had learned the power of the press and its effect on public opinion during his last episode of being a thorn in the side of established New York politics when he served in the state assembly. He was able to launch an investigation into a corrupt state Supreme Court judge by getting the press to write about it. The newsmen, having discovered that stories about Theodore Roosevelt sold lots of papers, obliged. By the time the investigation bill came to a vote, it passed by an overwhelming margin. Even the assemblymen who were owned lock, stock, and barrel by the bosses opposing the investigation couldn't vote against it because of the public outcry in favor of it. Always a shrewd fellow, Teddy had learned his lesson. He was fond of having reporters, most notably muckraker Jacob Reese, accompany him on midnight inspection tours of the city, where he found beat cops napping at their posts or socializing in public when they should have been patrolling. He reprimanded the offenders the following morning, to the surprise of the police department and the adulation of the newspaper-reading public. But Teddy miscalculated his influence when he went after saloons, which were supposed to be closed on Sunday. Most New Yorkers worked a six-day week, so closing the saloons was a non-starter. The bars flouted the law through ingenious means. A bar could serve liquor if it also served meals, so it could stay open as a pseudo-restaurant, serving 12 beers and a pretzel, as Teddy wrote in his autobiography. There were also less complicated solutions, like bribing police and city officials. Teddy's unpopularity over the saloon issue dampened his enthusiasm for the job and motivated the Republican machine to get him out of town. So they got President William McKinley to appoint him Assistant Secretary of the Navy. This was no plum assignment. At the time, the United States Navy was small and underfunded. Most members of Congress believed that preparing for war would eventually get America involved in one, so they kept the post-Civil War military small and essentially useless. The job Teddy had been given was widely believed to be a career killer. There was no glory helping to run America's marginalized fleets. Deploying the same ingenuity and brashness that had become his trademark, Teddy was able to finagle naval funding from Congress. Because money for the Navy was only supposed to be for coastal defense, Teddy called battleships and cruisers coast defense battleships and armored cruisers, suggesting that the latter would be used primarily to protect our commerce.
to overcome the resistance of congressmen who only wanted ships to defend the coastline, the appropriations called for seagoing coast defense battleships. Teddy later wrote that the fact that the name was a contradiction in terms being a very small consequence compared to the fact that we did thereby get real battleships. We should not forget that Theodore Roosevelt was a naval expert. His book on the Naval War of 1812 was a major historical work. The U.S. Navy had ordered that every ship have a copy on board within a few years of its publication. And the United States was facing a naval war with Spain over Cuba. As it became apparent that war was inevitable, that it would be primarily a naval war, and that the nation was wholly unprepared for it, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy's efforts to get the country ready made national headlines. When his boss took a day off, Teddy issued orders to American naval commanders around the world, moving squadrons to strategic locations in order to be ready when the war broke out. When the president learned of the unauthorized instructions, he let them stand. Once war was declared, Admiral Dewey, moved into place by the impetuous assistant secretary, took Manila Bay in the Philippines without losing a single man. So much for a dead-end job. Teddy resigned from the Navy Department when war finally came, getting himself appointed second-in-command of a volunteer regiment that became nationally known as the Rough Riders. He'd always been ashamed of the fact that his father, whom he adored, had hired a substitute to get out of service in the Civil War, and he resolved to fight in whatever war came along. He served bravely in the conflict and once again made sure that his exploits made it into the papers. He brought newsmen and early motion picture cameras with him to Cuba. After only 10 weeks, America had won the war, and Teddy was a national hero. He had been nominated for a Medal of Honor, but his superiors in the regular army blocked the award, annoyed by his grabbing of headlines. He was awarded the medal posthumously in 2001. New York Republicans had an unpopular incumbent governor and were heading into a tight race in 1898. Against their better judgment, and owing to Teddy's national fame, the machine bosses, most notably Senator Thomas Platt, who ran New York Republican politics, asked him to run for governor. Platt feared he would oppose his interests, so Teddy promised to try not to make war with the Republican establishment. He won the election, campaigning heavily on his war record. Once in office, he held twice daily press conferences, knowing that real power rested in public opinion. He inevitably clashed with Senator Platt over political appointments and pushed for a bill that taxed corporations that had their franchises granted by the state. He also took on corporate monopolies, championed labor interests, and set aside state land for conservation. William McKinley, sitting vice president, died of heart failure in 1899. Senator Platt, eager to be rid of Governor Roosevelt, started a newspaper campaign pushing for Teddy's nomination to yet another dead-end job, Vice President of the United States. It would seem that Teddy wasn't the only one who had learned the power of the press. America had had only a few presidents who had been considered heroes. Washington, Jackson, Lincoln, and Grant. The rest were considered to be bland mediocrities at a time when real power rested with Congress and the political machines that owned it. The vice presidency was even more of a non-entity and was perceived as a powerless and marginal office. That had been an open secret since John Adams first held the office. America's most lovable crank called the vice presidency the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Teddy definitely did not want the job. He said, I would a great deal rather be anything, say professor of history, than vice president. 
but always a dutiful Republican, Teddy went to the 1900 convention and told Platt he would accept the nomination if it was offered. Otherwise, he would run for another term as governor of New York. This was all the threat Platt needed. Despite Teddy's usual political brilliance, he was at times astoundingly naive about how real politics worked. It was easy for Platt to engineer Roosevelt's vice presidential nomination at the convention. Teddy's status as a national war hero made him a popular candidate, and conventions are about campaigning, not governing. McKinley's first election had been uncomfortably close, and no president had won a second term since the mythic Ulysses S. Grant nearly 30 years before. The delegates knew Teddy's national fame could help McKinley win, and that was what they cared about in that moment. Only Mark Hanna, McKinley's campaign manager and Ohio party boss, had the foresight to imagine Teddy anywhere near the reins of power. He demanded of McKinley and the senior Republican power brokers, don't any of you realize there's only one life between this madman and the presidency? Of course they did, but the powerful New York bosses wanted Teddy far away from the governor's mansion and hoped that after one term as vice president to a lame duck president, his career would end up the same way as most other VPs. Over. The needs of the moment outweighed any remote future considerations, and Teddy got the nomination. The pattern of underestimating Theodore Roosevelt continued. At this point in American politics, no one had ever seen anything like him. Politicians worked in secret and avoided the limelight. Andrew Jackson was as close as anyone had ever come to the rough-and-tumble, ready-for-action politician that Teddy was, and he had been feared and misunderstood in his own time. Current political wisdom warned against another old hickory. American politics at the time were run by American business, which depended on compliance stability from their federal officeholders. Most political leaders in America were mediocrities because their handlers wanted business as usual. Theodore Roosevelt was not their man. The election of 1900 was a rematch of 1896, pitting McKinley against William Jennings Bryan. McKinley had run a classic front porch presidential campaign, addressing over half a million mostly hand-picked people who had been brought to the front lawn of his Canton, Ohio home. By contrast, Bryan had traveled the country and addressed millions of people who came out for the novelty of seeing a presidential candidate in person and ended up captivated by Bryan's presence. The Democrats' late surge in the Midwest worried the Republicans. In the end, 53,000 votes would have cost McKinley the White House in 1896. It has been argued that Teddy Roosevelt changed the math in 1900. He stormed the country with enthusiasm matching Bryan's own travels. He drew in large crowds usually not seen for a vice presidential nominee. Bryan, meanwhile, made significant gains in the parts of the country where he had underperformed four years earlier. McKinley set out the race on a grander front porch this time, the White House, but did no real active campaigning. It isn't hard to believe that had McKinley had a bland running mate, he would not have won. Teddy attracted lots of press attention as usual because he always made for good copy. Other politicians looked to newspaper editors for favorable coverage in the form of measured, reasonable editorials about dry policy. Teddy got the traveling reporters to write about him, and he captured the imagination of the country. The McKinley-Roosevelt ticket won the election by a wide margin, adding the western states the president had lost four years before. The ones where Teddy was incredibly popular. Channeling crabby old John Adams, Teddy said that the vice presidency is not a stepping stone to anything except oblivion. Senator Thomas Platt of New York came to the inauguration to watch Teddy 
take the veil, as he put it, gleefully thinking that he had permanently sidelined the ornery former governor. Teddy himself thought so, too. Once in office, he went quiet, declining an invitation to address a crowd in February 1901, chiefly for the excellent reason, I have nothing to say. He marched to his duty of presiding over the Senate like a man plotting to the gallows. Now all that there is for me to do is to perform with regularity and dignity the duty of presiding over the Senate, and to remember the fact that the duty not being very important is no excuse for shirking it. Fun times. Teddy was no more suited for the Senate than he had been for a career in law. His impatient, active mind wandered while the senators droned on, and he had a limited understanding of how the Senate worked. He had disdained legislative politics after his time in the New York Assembly. He felt he was meant to govern as an executive. One of the senators at the time agreed, saying his peculiar qualifications for the public service fitted him better for wider, broader, and more useful fields. Teddy himself admitted that he was the poorest presiding officer the Senate ever had. President McKinley believed his young vice president was too incautious and impulsive and never consulted him on policy or assigned him any tasks other than sitting in front of the Senate. Probably remembering that time when Teddy, as assistant secretary of the Navy, had moved America's fleet around the world while his boss was out of town. Teddy, for his part, thought his boss moved way too slow. Don't worry, Theodore. Only three more years to go. The Senate adjourned and Teddy fled to New York to vacation with his family. After a season of stifling Washington politics, this escape was his most enjoyable vacation in years. He was like a man let out of jail on furlough. In September 1901, President McKinley was shot by an anarchist named Leon Scholzos in Buffalo. Teddy rushed to the city, but the president's doctors told him the prognosis for McKinley was good. He was encouraged to leave by the president's staff, who thought that the presence of the vice president at McKinley's bedside would cause public concern. So Teddy went to the Adirondacks to climb a mountain. A messenger struggled up to see him on September 13th, bearing the news that the president was dying and Teddy should get back to Buffalo. At midnight, Teddy started his race down the mountain to become president. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about the American vice presidency, or you think Teddy Roosevelt would have made a great history professor, you can Twitter to at History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we go with the Rough Rider on his midnight ride to the White House and the decision that cost him another term as president. Stay tuned for Teddy Roosevelt's Third Term, Part 2.